sacrifices. You've got to make sacrifices for your team. To answer your question. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Inside Position with me, Tom Halpin. Today's guest is Dr. Ian Dunnikin. Ian is a world-renowned expert in sleep and performance, and he regularly works with elite athletes and teams in all kinds of professional sports, such as basketball, rugby, MMA, martial arts, swimming, and Formula One. And he's also no stranger to competition himself, being a frequent ultramarathon runner and also a black belt in jiu-jitsu. We had a great chat, covering many misconceptions around sleep and performance, and Ian also shared some practical ways that you can improve your sleep and performance in your own life. So here we go with another episode of Inside Position with Dr. Ian Dunnigan. I wanted to get your opinion on something that I'm always talking to my friends about and it's a bit controversial and I'm always telling them, lads, I don't believe in morning trainings. Am I a bit over the top or is there something, is there something to that? Well, what I'd say to you here, Tom, is uh, you're a scientist and you don't even know it because and the actual fact is there's a lot of evidence to show that early morning training particularly for strength-based work is actually not very good. So the field of area that I work in is like sleep science or predominantly I would call it sleep science because people understand that. But really what I do is what's called chronobiology, which is the application of kind of sleep science principles into the real world, like shift workers, athletes, any application. So I'm not really interested in laboratory-based work. I'm interested in practical applied stuff um, out there in the field. And one of the things that we see in chronobiology, so chrono meaning the word time coming from the Greek myth god chronos, and obviously biology, people, that's self-evident, uh, time biology. We see that basically we have our day divided into two parts. You know, we got the we got the daytime activities, we got the nighttime activities. And the nighttime activities, which is generally sleep for most people, unless you're a shift worker or doing something else, the daytime activities that affect that are just as important as the overnight sleep activity. So I often liken this to the yin and yang symbol in Taoism, you know, a bit of black and a bit of white, one infers the other, one impacts the other. And it's not this kind of just, you know, at seven o'clock, I'll, I'll do something now for sleep and I just shut off. We're not machines like that. So um, what we do know is from the chronobiology research that there is certain times of day that certain things happen. So if you allow me, I'll just, I'll just briefly go through a 24 hour day, which will probably yeah. help explain the reason for this. So in general, most people will get up, you know, in the morning, sometime we'll say between, let's say six and seven. Now that's quite normal here in Australia, but in Ireland, that's like the middle of the night, you know? So, so, so in Ireland, it might be between eight and nine. I got, I, coincidentally, a few years ago, I was home in Ireland and uh, I got up at half six to go get a coffee. And my dad was like, where are you going? It's the middle of the night. I was like, I'm getting a coffee. To be nowhere open until half nine. I was like, what? Okay. Um, so we wake up in the morning, you know, and we have this kind of increase. Uh, we have this increase in cortisol, like a stress hormone. And then we have our highest peak of alertness in the morning, somewhere between nine and 12 o'clock, body temperature rises. Um, and then we have, you know, around lunchtime, we have our lunch and then after lunch, we might feel a little bit sleepier, a little bit of a dip. And that's called a circadian low or a circadian dip. And um, for people in Spain, this is when they have siesta, to have a little break, might have a little nap because we have a little dip in our, in our, um, in our alertness. It's not got to do with the food. People think it's got to do with the amount of food that you eat or it's got to, got to do with like having a drink at lunchtime. Look, big meals and alcohol at lunch is not going to help you, but it's not actually related to those things. It's actually a naturally occurring, mm. what we call endogenous uh, process that's happening. And then from about three o'clock onwards, we have a uh, best reaction time. So for field-based or um, field-based sports, we're going to have good reaction time at this time. Um, and then around five o'clock, we're going to reach our greatest cardiovascular efficiency and muscular strength. So somewhere between about 4 and 7 p.m., 
if we want to hit a PB in the gym of lifting weights, we want to run a fast 10K, this is the time we should do it. Um, and then we're going to, because because not only are we in this greater cardio, greatest cardiovascular and muscular strength zone, we're also entering into what's called a period called the forbidden zone or the wake maintenance zone. And that typically occurs between 6 and 9 p.m. at night. This is the hardest time in a 24-hour period for us to sleep as humans. And this might be a hangover from the time we were hunted by saber two tigers or, I don't know, maybe dogs in Ireland, uh, wild cats, whatever was coming out to get us. Um, and so we were hypervigilant at this time. And then around 9 or 10 o'clock at night, we start having a dip in our, well, we gradually have a dip gradually in our cord, so our body temperature starts coming down. Melatonin gets released, which is a sleep-inducing hormone. And then the kind of conditions for sleep are rife at about 10, 11 o'clock for most people. Then we go through our period of sleep that gets divided into non-REM and REM sleep, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a bit about later on. So when we kind of put those blocks up or we look at what's called like a chronobiology wheel, the best time for people to exercise and to train is generally between sort of 4 and 7 or 8 p.m. in the evening. Now, I understand that people might have families and jobs and early morning training sessions um, might be the only time. But what I would say to, to people on that, be very careful, particularly older athletes, because if you have blood pressure issues or heart attack issues, if you exercise early in the morning without having good blood flow and good sort of mobility in your body, yeah, you're putting yourself at a greater risk of having a heart attack early in the morning. So in general, the answer is yes, you should train later in the afternoon into the early evening. That's my long-winded answer to that question. <laughs> okay. okay. It's good to know, though, my instinct was at least on the right track. And mm -hmm. regarding those chronotypes as well, so let's say pe people talk about being a night person or a morning yeah. person. Is one or the other necessarily better for anything? Like, my mom would always say to me, an hour before 12 is worth two. And I would, like, I would always get eight hours sleep, but it might be from two until 10. And, and I was wondering, is that better or worse than 11 to 7 kind of thing? So your mother was wrong. <laughs> I know. I know it's terrible to say that. An Irish that can't be. <laughs> an Irish mammy. An Irish mammy was wrong. But you tell her you heard her from a doctor. Um, yeah. <laughs> the truth in what she's saying is about routine. Mm. The truth about yeah. um, routine is definitely there. We know that when people yeah. have good sleep routines and they go to bed at the same time every night, get up at the same time every day, that is very good. So. Mammy was half right, we'll say. We'll give her a half a point. <laughs> yeah. But to, to break down that question a bit more, we have to look at what's called chronotypes within that chronobiology. And there's three different types of chronotypes. You have a lark, an intermediate, often called a dove, and then an owl. And so basically a lark likes to get up early in the morning and go to bed early. So when I described that 24-hour period for someone there a moment ago, that was typically like an intermediate or a dove type early morning chronotypes larks might want to go to bed earlier and get up earlier than that and the owls would be the opposite um, where they like to go to bed later and get up later as well now i i tend to think that there's a there's a there, there seems to be a kind of an, an an overlaying fact on this as well about cultural influences like i just said about the joke about getting up a half six an hour and going for coffee here in western australia that's that's actually not mm -hmm. not that early you know early here would be getting up at like maybe five half four you know, it wouldn't be too uncommon for a lot of people. If you go to the swimming pool here at half five in the morning, the swimming pool is packed with people swimming before work. Yeah, yeah, it's a completely different culture, particularly here in the West. So that, that being said, those three different chronotypes, the key there is is routine and consistency of sleep patterns. So um, where it's going to affect people, because the question then was, is generally like, which one is better? Well, there is no better. Mm. It's understanding what your chronotype is yeah. and how optimizing for it. If you're a lark chronotype, 
you're my you're my might be better off doing any earlier training session in the day. There's no point in you training extremely late in the evening, sort of seven, eight, nine, because yeah. you're you're just going to be absolutely wrecked because it's going yeah. to it's going to find you a, it's going to take you a long time to get to sleep and you're going to wake up very early. You might be better off doing like a lunchtime class or like a five pm class and just leaving it at that. Mm. Um, whereas an out chronotype is generally going to want to do the later classes. And like, that's the kind of person that's going to be one to be at the gym to like eight, nine, 10, because they might normally go to bed till one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. The other thing we see as well for people who may be interested, uh, who do shift work is the people who are owls are better at coping with night shift and the larks are better at coping with day shift. And then the opposite is true as well. The night, the larks are very bad at coping with day shift and the larks are very bad at coping with night shift. So it's understanding what chronotype you are which can be helpful in planning your training. And it's kind of tricky as well sometimes because the, let's say, normal culture it kind of runs off the same schedule. So if you fall naturally outside of that, have you seen people that have issues kind of adapting to a lifestyle that's kind of not forced upon them, but they have to go along with everything else? Oh, 100%. Yeah, it's probably one of the biggest complaints that people get. So I think, first of all, when we talk about chronotypes and chronology, depending on where you are, but in general, most people want to be a morning person. And I asked them, so you've done, what's your chronotype? Do you, so after you've heard me talk today or you've done this quick assessment, your chronotype came out as what? And they go, intermediate route. So why do you want to be a morning type? Yeah. And they'd be like, because it's just better. Who said? Mm. Oh, well, I saw on Instagram, it's better to go up in the morning. Schwarzenegger. That, you know, or Mark <laughs> Wahlberg, whatever. Yeah. And, and what I say to those people is, yeah, they might get up at four or five o'clock in the morning, but are they having a nap during the day? Are they doing it every single day? You know, do they just go up and take a picture and post it? Like, let's not believe everything that goes up on Instagram, guys, right? Mm. So, you know, like that's that's the other thing about it as well. But if you want to tra- change, change a chronotype because of lifestyle factors, such as work, <clears throat> such as training and so on, you have to use a couple of different things to manipulate. And the biggest thing that we use to manipulate is light. So we have to be able to control light and dark cycles. And that's what helps us manipulate in, the, in terms of jiu-jitsu and combat sports, one of the biggest things that people do to, one of the biggest probably um, challenges for people is changing their, their training camp and mm. their whole routine about becoming more of a nighttime person, or, or at least it should do. Yeah. So for example, if you're like a, you know, like a main card fighter in the UFC, you know, generally those cards are on in the US, the prelims are going to start around yeah. 6, 7 p.m., the main card is going to start around you know, 9 or 10 p.m. And the main event, if you're a main event fighter, you could be fighting at midnight, between midnight yeah. and half one in the morning. So getting up in the morning and training like Rocky is just not going to be, it's going to be just deleterious to you. It's not going to help you. Mm. Also as well, you're not adopt, adapting your body to that chronotype or that chronobiology optimal window. You need to be pushing yourself more towards an extreme old chronotype. But the opposite of that is true, Tom, when the UFC comes to Australia, because they change the time of the fight to have it to suit the North American market. So okay. when you see an Australian fight card, those prelims are starting at 6 a.m. in Melbourne, right? That's and cool. so if anybody knows anything about the scheduling of the UFC, they're sending a bus to the fighter hotel at like 4 a.m. Those guys are getting mm-hmm. up at 3 a.m. And they've also done a wake-up before that, you know, and so on and so on. So it, you, you've got to... Now we have to kind of switch a person back to being an extreme lar chronotype. So... I would say that whichever chronotype you want to optimize for it has to be based upon your lifestyle, your job, or an event. And so we might have to have those in flux over time. And so 
the more time we get, the better. But we we generally use the light and dark cycles um, to manipulate that. We, we obviously assess people's sleep doing that. We use light and dark cycles. We use timing of food. Um, you know, we use maybe sometimes we might use some very low level kind of sleep medication like melatonin and so on. Mm. But there's a kind of a regime you have to do to do to, to adapt to it. And I would urge anybody out there as a combat sport athlete who's competing at nighttime, not to just try to wing it on the night. Because if you're getting up every morning and trying to get road work in or do two a days and, you know, get up at four or five, six, seven o'clock in the morning and then you're fighting on a main card, it's not going to be good for you. You really should be in a training camp trying to replicate the timing and the conditions of the fight as much as possible. And I've written about this before on my website. Notable fighters that do this are Michael Bisping, Conor McGregor, these type of guys are people who ha- that have actually done this with, with good success. Yeah. yeah, that's definitely an area that people leave out, I'd say, like thinking you put so much effort in training and then you're not going to do, well, I guess people don't think of it to do the extra bit. They could have a huge impact on performance. It's on that point. Nick Diaz yeah, yeah. Uh, fought GSP, I think in, I want to say Montreal a number of years ago and lost it. Mm. And one of the things that Nick Diaz actually said in the post-fight interview, it was only a three-hour time difference from LA to Montreal, but that three hours was enough to put him off. And he wasn't kind of optimized for the timing of the fight. And so it completely screwed him up. And he said, basically, I didn't have, I'm not like a millionaire or somebody said to the, the, the effect of this. I'm not a millionaire like George St. Pierre. He goes, I don't have a sleep doctor telling me when to sleep and when not to sleep. Now, I don't know if GSP did or didn't, but it's interesting to see, a, see that as a comment in the press conference about like how fucked up he was for three hours, you know? With the jet lag as well, I know jiu-jitsu people or any sports, combat sports, a lot of travel time differences, different things. Is there a best strategy for dealing with the jet lag? Because some people, they kind of build up to it day by day, like a week or two before it. Other people just go straight in. Like I've heard some people say, oh, I just go last minute and then I don't feel the jet lag the same way. We actually published some work on this last year. We had a systematic review looking at all the jet lag, travel and jet lag interventions in athletes, which was very few in athletes. Mm. Um, And then we we developed a travel fatigue and jet lag consensus paper there's like 20 something was put together and it was published in sports medicine or bjsm so this is something i'm heavily involved in so i'm i our business is actually the advisors to the mclaren formula one team for the travel and jet lag and we have been for two years so we do all the travel fatigue and jet lag advice for the mclaren pit crew previous to that i worked with daniel ricardo a formula one driver one-on-one and i also worked with major league baseball with some elite pitchers as well and i've worked with a couple of other individual athletes so um, to define, before we talk about strategies, let's define some of these terms. So travel fatigue yeah. basically happens mm. within a time zone. So if you're in London and you fly to Johannesburg, that's yeah. on the same time zone, yeah. right? And so you're not going to have actually jet lag from that. Mm. So jet lag isn't just associated with being in a jet. <laughs> like if you fly <laughs> from Dublin to London, you're not going to have jet lag. Yeah, you may yeah. be tired from getting up early. You may be tired from being on the plane. You may be tired because some guy chewed your air off for two hours on the flight. <laughs> you know, whatever it might be, you might be tired from yeah. that. And it might be a pain in the ass, which, look, I've done travel here in Australia. It's like two or three hours and you're tired after it. So it's travel fatigue, mm-hmm. but it's not actually jet lag. We only experience jet lag when we when we travel, you know, across these what we call trans-meridian lines mm-hmm. in, a, in, a rapid, in a rapid movement. So, you know, let's use the example of being in Dublin. We've got two directions we can go. We can go east towards, let's say, Singapore, or we can go west towards Boston. Now, in general, if you travel in an easterly direction, it's more hard 
where it's more difficult to adapt to that time zone, whereas going in a westerly direction is easier to adapt. So I think maybe the time difference between Dublin and Boston, would it be four or five hours? I'd say about five hours. Oh, five hours, maybe roughly, yeah. Between Dublin and Singapore, it's either seven or eight hours, depending on time of the year. I think it might be seven hours at the Mm. moment. So let's look at Dublin to Singapore. For every time zone you cross, so it's seven-hour time difference, it's going to take you up to a day to get used to it. So when you fly from Dublin to Singapore, it may take you seven days to get used to it. However, when we go in a westerly direction, and let's say we go to Boston and it's five days, it's only a half a day per time zone. So it might only take you two and a half days maximum. Now you can speed those things up by number one, you can, what you mentioned there, Tom, you can advance or delay your time at sleep onset. So you can gradually go to bed, you know, maybe um, earlier or later, depending on the direction of travel. That's one strategy you can do. Some people can can do it because they have they have free reign over their schedule. Other people might yeah. be like working like a crazy person right up until the time to fly, so they can't. Yeah. Um, that's another factor to consider. So then, when you are going to the new time zone, what you should do is we use a combination of again light and dark strategies. So we want to get onto the new the new time zone as quickly as possible. And so for a lot of time, a lot of people that's basically having one or two really shitty days. So you might have to stay awake all day. So we'll use light and dark cycles, sleep timing, food, caffeine, uh, the avoidance of alcohol and exposure to natural sunlight at different times. So unfortunately, there's not one answer that gives you, here's the jet lag plan. It's going to depend on the direction of travel east versus west. The other thing it depends on as well, which is really the marker for me, is when is your performance required? If you're going to Las Vegas and it's a seven-hour time difference or eight-hour time difference and you're just going on the piss for two weeks, you probably don't care because you're going to be stuck inside a casino with you know, no natural light anywhere, no clocks. Because what casinos do is casinos use sleep science in the opposite direction. They use it for bad. They're like the ah. Voldemort of chronobology. When you go into a, mm. into, into a casino, you're not going to see natural light and dark cycles. You're not going to see clocks. You're going to have lots of nice airflow. It's never going to feel too hot. It's never going to feel too mm. And what they're trying to replicate is that time I spoke about earlier, the forbidden zone between six and nine o'clock in the evening, where you feel this heightened state, you know, oh, the, the night's about to kick off. You know, you're always feeling kind of this slight kind of buzz from that. And so that's what they're trying to replicate. So if you're going on a holiday like that, it probably doesn't matter. Or if you're just going to lie on the beach in Spain, you know, it's a two-hour time difference, whatever it might be, or an hour time difference, it's not really going to be a factor. Just go there, relax. But if you've got to go to Singapore and you're fighting in like 1FC and you're flying on a Tuesday and your fight's on a Saturday night, well, that's a different story. Now we need to contend with this rapid adjustment across these time zones. We need to contend with a wake cut. We need to contend with media we need to contend with fans. We need to contend with all of these things because it's not like you're going to arrive there and you know, you're just going to be able to do whatever you want. The, the, these companies, UFC, 1FC, Bellator, the minute you hit that, your arse hits that ground, you are, you are on for them and for the fight. You know? <laughs> now, I'm not sure what it's like so yeah. much in, in jiu-jitsu tournaments in like a Polaris event or an Eddie Bravo. I think it's a, bit, it's a lot more milder, but you're still going to have yeah. some issues. And I think sometimes in jiu-jitsu, it can be worse because athletes are traveling to a time zone, they're not doing, they're doing a weight cut. It's more like a weight reduction because if it's same day weighing, you don't have the luxury of yeah. regaining the weight. So you might actually be quite dehydrated and quite hungry, quite agitated, mm-hmm. which all affects your sleep as well. And then, you know, you might be able to sleep and so on. So 
there's all those factors have to be taken into account. Um, so it sounds like I'm trying to not give you the answer, but I'm trying to I'm trying to tell you the variables that you should look at. And um, yeah, we can link people in the show notes to you know articles we've written on travel mm-hmm. and jet lag and, and consensus papers, and we have a book chapter coming out later on this year in a sleep and sports book. Um, but unfortunately, Tom, it, it requires detailed individual plans, and that's the problem with it. There's yeah. no one size fits all. Yeah, and the other thing I'd say as well for people is is altitude is another significant factor. That this is something that gets overlooked a lot. If you, this happened okay. to me back in 2012, 2013, I went to run in a, um, to Leadville, which is in Colorado. And I, I competed yeah. in a 100 mile race. And um, it was across the Colorado Rockies, but it was between 10,000 and 13,000 feet. And so I not only have jet lag to contend with, I also had adaptation to altitude to contend with. And, mm. So it was extremely difficult to do it. And so it, that can cause what's called apneas or high, uh, arousals overnight. So basically, as you're falling asleep at altitude, it feels like someone's choking you and you wake up gasping for breath. Places like this are Johannesburg, Denver, Mexico City, you know, mm. places like that. So you want to check out the altitude of the venue as well before you're going there. Because if you're going to somewhere mm. like Mexico City, and I think for Fabricio Verdum, did he fight Ken Velasquez oh, yeah. in Mexico City years ago? Yeah, and Fabricio spent a lot of time in Mexico City before the fight where Ken didn't, and I think Fabricio yeah. bet the shit out of him if memory serves me yeah. right. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good few years ago. So, I would always say to people if you're going to altitude, if you uh, add a, at least a week on, if not more. That's where people were saying sea level Kane was still the best fighter in the world. Yeah. <laughs> would you see people who are affected more by jet lag than others? Because I know myself for some reason recently. I feel more sensitive almost to a bad night's sleep. Uh, a couple of things. How old are you, Tom? 28. 28. Uh, God, I could be your dad. I hate that. <laughs> Shocking. Terrible. Um, 28. Right. So <laughs> one, that, that's a scary thought, isn't it? Me, your dad. Um, <laughs> go outside and play. You can do whatever you like. Here's money. Um, so what we do see is that... Um, Generally, over time, and a lady called Laura Julep has published some work on this around sleep disturbances in athletes, mm. and it actually it ties in with a few other things I, I have seen. So let's talk about sleep disturbances or and mm. um, what you're saying. I have found in not so much in my from looking at some papers, but also in my individual consulting work with athletes that I've worked with individually, and even with shift workers. Yeah. Once people start hitting around thirty years of age, which you're starting to touch on, mm. the sleep disturbances yes. and the sleep arousals start to become more prevalent and people start to have a little bit more difficulty with sleep. And in general, this seems to be more related to physical activity. And this is, again, just what I have observed. This is not me speaking from a scientific yep. evidence base, but it tends to be that mm. people, you know, kind of, around this age start having more and more disruptions and, and it's difficult, more difficult for them to achieve sleep, the quality of sleep, start getting more fragmentation. And that could be, I think, from years of training, it could be partly of that. Mm. Also as well, as you get older, yeah. it gets harder and harder for your body to recover. Um, I was just talking about this actually to somebody today. I found like when I hit 30, there was a decline. Mm. 35 was like another mm. step. 40 was another step for me. And now every year since turning 40, it's just been more and more every year seems to get just harder and harder to recover. Like 
where I could go and do, yeah. I don't know, four or five, six jiu-jitsu sessions a week, go running, train for an ultra marathon. That's gone. Like if I if I can get three jujitsu sessions in a week, I'm 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 doing well. And it's not because of time, but I just need variation. So like I'll box one day, I'll swim another day, then jujitsu, then lift weights, and then I just need variation. I need to give my body more chance to to recover. But generally when athletes, we start seeing more sleep disruption from 30, 30 years of age onwards, and recovery becomes more important. Okay. Um the sleep disturbances outside of that, some people then do get kind of preoccupied with the sleep disturbances and get a bit worried about them it's mm. quite normal to have a you know oh, two okay. or three bad nights sleep a month that's quite normal mm. the other thing as well is okay pe- people tend to have a, an overestimation of the sleep problem so people wake up in the morning and go oh jesus christ it's such a shite night sleep last night if i got an hour i was doing well and really they've probably yeah. had about five or six hours right <laughs> I, I ran laboratory based studies with people in the lab um, do an overnight polysmonography, like gold standard level in super rugby. And this guy, I never forget, we put him to bed. He was like, I don't want to sleep with all these wires in my head. I was like, just relax, man. It's just, we, it's not going to be a perfect night's sleep. We're just looking for the prevalence of sleep disorders. He fell asleep after about an hour and a half. He woke up, rang the bell, I went in. He was like, can't sleep. I was like, you've just been asleep for an hour and a half. <laughs> no, 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 I wasn't asleep. I wasn't asleep because I just had my eyes closed. We've got all like electrodes on the brain, the eyes across the body. We can tell. I don't even need to see the video camera. I can tell from the brain activity if someone's asleep and I can tell what stage they're in sleep. It's a bit like looking at the matrix, you know? You can actually figure out exactly what's going on by all these kind of these elements on the, on the screen. So anyway, I said to him, I met a deal with him. I said, look, if you can't sleep in an hour, you know, I give him a magazine and I said, look, if you can't sleep in an hour, I'll take all the shit off you. You can go home. No stress. So anyway, next morning, I'm in banging on the door. Yeah, talking in the morning, waking him up. How'd you sleep? Oh, shite. Worst, worst night's sleep I ever had. That dad is going to be shite. You won't be able to do anything with that. I said, come in here to the, come in here to the control room. And I showed him being asleep all night. And he still didn't believe it. He was asleep, Tom, for eight and a half yeah. hours. He, he <laughs> estimated he got about 90 minutes sleep the whole night. I showed wow. him footage of him asleep. I showed him all the elements and he's like, come, all the data coming off him. And I even showed him footage, the elements and him snoring. And he goes, nah, just, that's just the way I breathe. So some people are just preoccupied with like thinking they have a bad night's yeah. sleep the whole time. So, you know, that's more about them understanding, yeah. you know, how, how they sleep. So that, that can be a bit of a, mm. a difficulty as well. So I think a lot of people get, get anxious yeah. about sleep and then just wind themselves up more and more. Mm. So it's quite normal to have sleep, uh, poor night's sleep. What I, was, what I generally say to people is, I don't really want to know about a bad night's sleep. What I want to know about is I want to see your data over a 21-day rolling average. Are you training consistently at the same day? Is your sleep on average, you know, between seven and nine hours? And if that, the answer to that is all yes, then that's good. Then I might start looking at, look, every Friday night you go on the piss and you stay up till three o'clock in the morning and then you train really bad <laughs> on a Saturday. And, you know, we want to kind of bring that back down. Maybe go out and have a few drinks, but try and get home by 12, that sort of thing. You know, we start looking at those kind of little variations in between. And, and that's really what I would say to people is like, if you're looking at sleep data off your wearables, you're looking at over the long term. Getting up in the morning going, I had a shit night's sleep, I only slept five hours. What are you going to do about it? Unless you want to take the yeah. day off and sleep in then all day. And then you're not going to feel tired that night, so you're going to ruin your next night's sleep anyway. So you're best off looking at this down yeah. on, on average over long term. And um, you try to alleviate your own kind of, um, I suppose, anxiety about sleep that way. The sleep anxiety is a funny one because then the more you think about it, the worse your sleep actually yeah. is. Like, is there anything you would tell someone who has sleep anxiety that could just make them calm down about it and relax. 
Yeah, but that that's not going to help someone at two o'clock in the morning. I think you know, twenty twenty one days after, going to be like, that's not going to help me now. What what I what <laughs> I'm I, not going to sleep. I, yeah, I was actually actually writing some stuff about this this week, which was about I think mm. again thinking about that yin and yang symbol about what happens during the day, what happens at night. I think pre pre bed routine is is a key component in this. So I always say to people, start with the sleep environment. I think it's really overlooked. Um, I spoke to Jordan Sullivan, the fight dietitian, about this recently on his podcast. That a lot of fighters and combat sport athletes just treat their bedroom with the stain, really. They have it as a, you know, this area where they hang out, play games, catch up with their mates, especially when they're at mm-hmm. fight camps or getting ready for a fight week. So I'd say, first of all, have your sleeping environment conducive to two things, sleep or sex. That's it. We don't want your, if you can help it, you, you know, like and that's all we want to do. We want to do in there. We don't want to have it as a, if we can help it. And yeah. um, we don't want to have like laptops in there or set up as a study mm. and as well. And I know that's, that's difficult for people in share houses, people living at home or mm. people that are, you know, basically need to get some space away from the kids and through the pandemic. I know that's difficult. Um, removal of electronic devices out of room, TVs, any sort of stimulating activity. Um, and having that bedroom kind of clean and, People who have more sort of clutter in their bedroom uh, tend to do more hoarding or obsessive compulsing, compulsive disorder, generally mm-hmm. have shittier sleep compared to those who don't. So if there's one room in your house that you want to keep really clean and pristine and, and have it nice, it's it's the bedroom, I would say. That, that's the first place I'd start with. The other thing then to help around with the quality of the sleep would be to control the temperature. So men generally like the room mm-hmm. colder than women. Uh, the use of fans is good as well. In hot countries like Australia, you know, using aircon. Some people like to fall asleep listening to the radio or a podcast. Um, all these things are helpful if they make you feel comfortable. What you don't want to yeah. be doing is just before bed is sitting down with an engineering textbook, trying to work out problems, <laughs> cr- cracking open your laptop at nine o'clock to answer some emails that you missed during the day. The things you want to be doing before sleep. And a lot of people that have sleep anxiety, it's due to those hours before bed. So you know, get your kind of sleep sleep environment in order. That's number one. The second thing I would say is lower any sort of mental or cognitive activity before bed. But what you don't want to be doing is you don't want to be sitting there playing video games, particularly violent video games. The more violent the video game, the more sleep disturbances. There's, there's data to show that. And you don't want to be doing any sort of complex, you know, cognitive workload in the hours before bed. You want to be trying to trying to wind down. All of those things can really help. And the other one that I use as well for athletes yeah. or even uh, business leaders is make a to-do list. So do a bit of a brain dump on a piece of paper and all the things that are in your head so you get them out of your head and down on the paper. Now, some people will say, mm-hmm. no, but when I go to sleep, I have a notebook by my bed. So if I wake up, no, 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 no. You don't want to be waking up. You want to get all this stuff out of your head mm-hmm. and down at the paper for the next day. So kind of a day in review was a good thing to do. What you achieved, you know, what you need to do for tomorrow, any sort of things you need to address, even as simple as that on a piece of paper. You know, it doesn't have yeah. to be some beautiful book. It can be on the back of a cornflakes packet for all I give a shit. Once you get out of your head, it just tends to yeah. help people like relax a bit more. And that's another way to help with, with sleep anxiety. If sleep anxiety goes on then over long term, may I want to look at talking to a sleep psychologist mm. looking at um, what we call CBD, CBT, not CBD, mm. sorry, CBT, cognitive <laughs> behavioral therapy. Um, yeah. Which actually, for some people that have clinical insomnia, CBD is now being used anyway. So, <laughs> so CBD all, all and CBT. And is using the phone before bed as bad as people say? Because I've gone through years of reading books before going to bed and it helps put me to sleep. But now, like the main thing I do just before I go to bed, I don't think I've ever actually told anyone this, but I just watch on my phone with the brightness down as low as possible. 
a few qualifying laps from old Formula One races or whatever. And just the kind of rhythmic nature of it. Yeah, yeah. It's hilarious. Like if I told anyone that, they'd be laughing at me. But it literally puts me out in two seconds, even though you wouldn't think the way people say if you get the light in your eyes and stuff. Have you seen a big difference between using phones or not or anything before bed? Well, the next the next time I talk to my former one clients, I'll let them know you're boring the <laughs> shit out of them and they're falling asleep. Um, <laughs> this is an interesting thing. And this is actually a bit of motive, um, this topic, and a bit, uh, nearly a bit, I think it's like a kind of nearly a bit of an ideology in, in the sleep science mm. world. And um, there's probably two camps on this. Um, do you know Matt Walker, who wrote the book, Why We Sleep? Yeah, he, he just he, yeah. Well, he's just recently come out and said that he was wrong about electronic devices by wrote that book. Wow. Yeah, he just came out and wow. said that. Now, for a number of years, I have been saying that on podcasts. Um, I have done studies hmm. in laboratory and in the field. Uh, one in netball athletes and one in judo athletes at the Australian Institute of Sport, looking at this, and I found no effect of electronic devices on sleep. Uh, Russell Foster from Oxford um, University, who leads the um, the sleep and circadian neuroscientific institute there he agrees with me as well um on this as well and michael gradazar from flinders university who's just left flinders now um would agree with me too the literature is divided and um, what we have here tom is a problem between what we call statistical significance and clinical significance so the classic example i'll give you here yeah. is that you'll read a study and it says group a used um devices before bed group a took longer mm. to fall asleep than group b yeah. So group A fell asleep in, you know, 20 minutes and group yeah. B fell asleep in 12 minutes. So there's eight minute difference. Now, when you do what's called a T test between those two groups, there will be a statistical difference because that eight minutes yeah. for each person, if there was 10 people in each group will come out as being significant. And therefore it's a finding. Now, this is the problem. And I urge people, when you read a scientific paper, just because a P value or a result is positive, doesn't mean it means shit mm. really so yeah. what do you look into that the clinical norms for somebody falling asleep are between 10 and 20 minutes and we really don't ring any alarm bells mm. until it's at least over 30 minutes so if group one is falling asleep in you know 18 or 20 minutes and group b is falling asleep in mm. 10 or 12 minutes they're both inside the clinical norms it's a statistical difference yeah. but it's not yeah. clinically relevant you know what I mean? It's like, that means yeah. absolutely nothing clinically. And this is where a lot of these papers will do this. And they're very laboratory-based and controlling conditions. But there's a lot of papers out there that have found no evidence of it. Now, what I think might be going on, Tom, yeah. is the pre-bed arousal activity, like I was saying. Answering emails from your boss, working on a spreadsheet. All of these things are the things that may be stimulating people and causing them to stay awake. And I think more studies are needed in that area. But... um. Yeah, there, the, the, the evidence is not conclusive. I don't mind picking a fight because I'm not a full-time academic. I, mm. I, you know, I, I have never worked in academia. I have what's called mm. adjunct roles. So I've got two adjunct roles, one at the University of Western Australia and one at the uh, Eda County University. And I mm. collaborate with lots of people around the world, but I'm an independent, self-funded, 100% self-funded scientist. So I don't have any drum to beat for anybody. I can just yeah. look at the evidence and I can just basically do whatever I like. So I'm not controlled yeah. by anybody. Adjunct positions are just privileged positions that are given to people to work mm. with the universities for free, basically. I get, don't get one penny off the yeah. university, not from what, any hour of work I do. So anybody says that my position is biased, no, mm. it's not, because I'm 100% self-funded. <laughs> yeah. 
it's great to take that bias out of it though in fairness i'd say it depends more as well what you'd be looking at on the phone before falling asleep like if i wasn't watching the owl qualifying laps and i was getting wound up on social media it probably would take me a bit longer i'd say well, we actually did a study, Tom, looking at this, led by Madison Jones, who did her PhD, and I helped her out on this study. It was in that in that sleep lab at University of Western Australia, where she randomized people's to conditions in using polysomnography, yeah. which is the gold standard of sleep in laboratory conditions. She randomized people to different. Mm. They went to different con- conditions. So, reading a boring magazine, reading a stimulating magazine, reading mm. on an iPad, um, something boring on an iPad, all of those different conditions that she <laughs> randomized people to, and there was no difference. There was absolutely okay. no, no no difference. So you see, wow. you see, here's what's interesting. What you said there. Mm. I'm a Formula One fan. Yeah. So when I watch qualifying, my heart is out through my head. I suppose actually, yeah, same. It makes it interesting then if if you're yeah, a actually. Formula One fan, how do you? How can you just? But is it the fact that you know know the result of the race already? So obviously, it's going to be all races. I guess the kind of metronomic action of it almost. I'm yeah. Sure. But if you sat down to watch quali- qualifying on a Sunday, would your heart be beating through your head watching oh, yeah. qualifying? Yeah, see, that's, that's true. Because yeah. I don't know the results. That's what it is. Yeah, I think it's I think it's got to do with the, mm-hmm. with the outcome. Because I'm like that sometimes when yeah. I can't sleep, I put on like an old podcast that I've listened yeah. to like four or five times. Just like gone. That's it. And it's yeah. particularly if I've listened yeah. to it lots of times. I'm just like gone. There's a comforting <laughs> in the voice. And mm. I, I think that's this is an interesting area because a lot of older people do this. But I did it as a kid. So what 13-year-old listens to talk back radio to fall asleep? But I loved that. I found a great sense of comfort in, comfort in that. And to this yeah. day, I've listened to the radio or the podcast falling asleep. And without it, mm. it's like my safety blanket nearly, you know? Mm. So I think it's all about personal preference. If it helps you, it helps you. But for other people, yeah. it might stimulate you. But um, yeah, maybe to answer your one there, but it could be just got to do with the fact that you know the result and that's why. Yeah, so, yeah. that makes sense, actually. And you mentioned <laughs> the wear. you mentioned the wearables as well. Yeah. Are any of those any good? Because I know a lot of people who they had the whoop strap for a few days and they just threw it in the bin because they were saying, oh, I kept saying that I was 2% recovered. And I was like, fuck you, whoop, in the bin. Yeah, so I would say any of those kind of recovery metrics or, uh, you know, your fit to go or training, I think um, I would treat them with a lot of skepticism for, for that aspect. In terms of um, different devices, there's been two great papers come out and on my YouTube channel, I've done a breakdown of one of those papers by Evan Chinoy, who works with the U.S. Um, oh, I don't know the exact department, but like U.S. Marine Research, uh, Navy Research, something like that. I don't know the exact department he's in. Um, Evan did looked at all these devices, you know, from like the Garmin to the Aura Ring to the Fitbit and so on, um, looking at sleep metrics. And what Evan found was that when when you're looking at these things against the polysomnography, the gold standard, the best device on the market at the moment is the Fitbit in terms of estimating okay. sleep duration. So mm. um, I've got one here, like the Fitbit Versa. So that's like the best mm. one on the market at the moment. And the worst one, which I also have here, because I love to play around with these devices and I've published some in this area. <laughs> the worst one is probably this one, which is the Garmin. So okay. the Garmin is down the bottom. Now, um, looking at them for things like sleep duration, most of them are pretty good. The Fitbit at the moment mm. has the best algorithm based upon this paper. But for sleep stages, Tom, yeah. Any stages of sleep. So we got stage, you know, one and two, which is light sleep. We got stage three, yeah. which is deep sleep. And we got REM sleep, rapid eye movement or dream and sleep. Do not trust them for that. They are absolutely horrendous at doing them. And more, yeah. more to the point, if you wake up in the morning and it says you've only got 10% deep sleep, what action can you do to improve your deep sleep? Right? So that's the other thing as well as there's no, the data should be actionable. 
Right? Yeah. So that's that's the other thing as well. So we never use those sleep stages. The the all the data shows in terms of published research that they're, they're highly skewed. In other words, they're shit. Yeah. If you're going to get a device, <laughs> generally probably the Fitbit is one of the better ones. And the other thing is all these readiness or metrics or recovery scores. Yeah, I wouldn't. Um, I, w- I would. I would exercise a great deal of caution. We had. I, I worked with a major league baseball pitcher, and we had. He had the aura ring on him for many years, and then we did polysomnography, which is the gold standard. And we did about seven nights of the overnight polysomnography. The aura ring was overestimating his sleep by up to ninety minutes a night. Sorry, underestimating his wow. sleep by up to ninety minutes. Oh, under- so he uh, he thought he had a sleep problem when actual fact he was getting ninety minutes more. Yeah. So his readiness metric wow. out of re- re- the O ring was completely inaccurate. This is a this is a high level baseball pitcher. Yeah. We're talking millions of dollars a year and, here. So what these things that have on your mind as well. Exactly, and and it gets back to your point about anxiety. That would that would definitely make you anxious. You know, so if you're like a Formula One driver, you're a Major League Baseball pitcher, you're a UFC athlete. You know, particularly the higher the money goes, I I'd be saying to people like. Yeah, if you're if you're over thirty and you're talking about millions of dollars for fights or competing, mm. you know you need to be now thinking about your optimization of your recovery. It sounds like a plug mm-hmm. for my work. I don't really give a shit whether you come to me or anybody else, but <laughs> these are the these are the components that you really need to start looking at. You know, at this age, do you remember Peter have, Stringer that played rugby for Ireland? Do you remember him, Scrum Half? I do. Yeah, yeah. One of, one of Peter Stringer's main things he played into his early forties. You know, I think he's mm. the, but he might be the same age as me, about forty four now. He played into his early 40s and, um, you know, at, at high level rugby in the UK. And one of the mm-hmm. things that Peter did was basically he focused on like reduction or elimination of alcohol, sleep and nutrition. Mm-hmm. All those recovery variables well, are what kept him going. There's a lot of focus now on the little 1% things that make a difference. But really, it's those kind of 99% things that are actually the most important that people kind of forget about. I suppose they're not as maybe sexy as the other ones or not as uh, fancy yes. looking, but... So I, difference. I, I, I totally agree, Tom. I often say this to people. If you think about a triangle in your mind's eye and across the mm-hmm. bottom is time and on one side is like strength and conditioning and training for performance and then you hit the peak, which is like, you know, performance for like game time. But really what that is is a skew triangle because over time, 90% or more of your week is spent like strength and conditioning and getting ready for competition, you know, all this sort of thing, yeah. skills development. And so little is on actually sleep and recovery. And when mm. we do talk about recovery, most people, when they want to do recovery, they want to go and do cryotherapy, ice baths, put some boot on their leg, wear some sort of socks, wear, wear like a compression garment. I've come across athletes, amateur and, and other people in talks, and they've got every fucking fan angle device on them. Yeah. And they're sleeping like five hours a night. Yeah. Because they're getting, you know, they're like they're training at the gym at nighttime, doing two a days because they're watching UFC countdown. They're up at five o'clock in the morning to train. Then they're working as a tradesman all day. It's like, lads, you'd save yourself hundreds of dollars if you just allowed for another hour or two in bed every night. You know, but to get obsessed with all this kind of other recovery stuff. But when we look at the recovery permit, the base of the recovery permit is sleep. It's the number one recovery modality. And how much does it cost? Nothing. <laughs> but we'll go out and spend hundreds of dollars on all these gadgets and garmin, um, uh, garments that we put on and, and so on. People sleeping in skins and people fucking hanging upside down like bats and they'll do everything except just do the simple things you know i, I find it fascinating it's, yeah. it's interesting you know? it is it is it's funny i guess you want to do everyone sleeps you know but everyone doesn't have the inflatable boots Maybe exactly but, but but that's the other thing as well is people, <laughs> people 
people just need to basically, I think we can, you can get, there's a lot of low hanging fruit about timing of sleep and mm. extension of sleep and so on. And particularly for athletes who are looking to lower body fat. And this is why I'd say to older athletes as well, or people in weight dependent sports, if you want to jump down a few weight categories, like studies have shown that people who go from eight hours to 10 hours in bed basically drop like massive body fat percentages. Wow. Because it affects what's called leptin and ghrelin, appetite regulating hormones. So this is very important during the week of a weight cut. These are really important things during a training camp because most guys, particularly MMA fighters, are going to be dropping 20, 30 pounds. Yeah. So it's really important that you get your sleep right because this can actually curb your hunger during the day, you know, and your cravings. And they'd probably be thinking, oh, I need to get up early this week every day to go for a big long run in my sauna suit instead of yeah. actually <laughs> thinking about the other little things. Have you seen the sleep culture change much around in the last few years? It seems like a lot more people are thinking about it now and trying to optimize it at least a little bit more. I think in that respect, there's lots more people talking about it. And um, we've seen an explosion mm. in research since 2010 uh, around sleeping athletes. Mm. So that's, that's definitely, it's, it's good that we're getting more research coming out, but there's no funding for that research. It's basically just the goodwill of researchers and other people. Okay. Um, so we don't have any kind of funding bodies for that, which is a shame. Um, I think more people are talking about it. It's becoming more front and center. But parallel to that, Tom, we also have a cultural issue where people, they talk about mm. it, they want to get it, but yeah. we've got so many things happening in our life that we can't. And we, we, we try to mm. do too much. And I think, you know, you look at yeah. most families these days, you know, the, the mom and dad are working. And let's say they're like early 30s. Mm. They're working. They've got maybe two young kids. Maybe one of them is trying to do an MBA part-time, training for a triathlon, the other does kickboxing mm. or something. But there's just not enough time in the day. And people want to do all these things. And so what gets, what kind of gets chopped out then is sleep. You know, I've been guilty of this as well. I think people try to just pack too much in. Whilst there's lots to talk about, you know, lots of info about it, people aren't really exhibiting the same behaviors. A bit like the obesity issues that's happened over the last 20, 30 years. People are like, you know, people think, oh, I'm, I'm doing, I got a Fitbit. I'm managing my sleep. Well, I know yeah. fat people that have a weighing scales. It doesn't mean I'm managing their weight. <laughs> just a device to help you measure. You look at when the weighing scales became household items in the 70s and 80s, obesity levels didn't drop they're actually rising still and that's down to again cultural issues high caloric foods you know so on and so on and i think we've got the same thing in sleep as well people are trying to do too much people's yeah. workplaces expect too much people expect them to be on the whole time with a smartphone a laptop you know employers expect a lot of people so i think people need to claw back a bit more time for themselves in terms of uh in terms of sleep yeah, and that kind of grinding culture is still still growing as well in a way. Like if you get up early before other people, cutting your sleep short, you're actually being more, quote unquote, successful. Yeah, and I think like, you know, what I would say again is if you're looking at someone on Instagram, like a Jocko who gets up before o'clock in the morning, mm. but you know, you've got to, you've got to work from 6, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Maybe that's not the right time for you to go. What I would say is yeah. maybe your watch for training should be, you know, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Mm. You know, it's it's maybe it's a different time of you. It's like again, not all timing is perfect for everybody. It's going to be different things happen at different 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 times of the day and different times of the week for people. And um, the other thing as well to consider, I spoke to Dean. I'm a singer recently. Dean heads up the um, UFC Performance Institute, and I, that he's um his podcast is available with me on Sleep for Performance on mm. YouTube to watch it as a video or you can listen to it. And we were talking about this as well, about people training like multiple times a day. Like, And he was talking about how, uh, what's her name? 
Valentina yeah. Shevchenko. She actually trains once yeah. a day. She does like a big, what we call monophase okay. thing. So instead of mm-hmm. like doing running in the morning, something else and something else, she just goes, right, we're just doing like a two hour block, three hour block, and then that's it. And I think that would be yeah. better for people to do um, if their lifestyle can't, um, can't manage it. So if you're an amateur or semi-pro mm-hmm. and you have to work, or even some of the pros have to work full-time, you know, because there's not that much money really in, yeah. in law combat sports. If you're that type of person, you know, you've, you've, you've got to be able to have your own training time. And so maybe just one phase of your own training will be, will be beneficial. It's probably, it's probably good for people like yourself, Tom, or, you know, people like yeah. Lockton Giles or Craig Jones, because they're, they're teaching all day. So they're constantly kind of like upgrading their skills. And then, yeah. you know, they're, they're using that and then they can have their own training time or they can add in some training times here, or they can roll in classes to kind of more lower intensity training and so on. And that's the way I view my scientific research, even though I don't get paid for it. That, that to me is like getting sparring rounds in. And then when I go out and I consult to industry or individuals, I've got all that. I'm constantly on, on top of my game for that. So I view that as like training miles for me to do all that yeah. research and keep engaged because then it allows me to be better equipped to work with my clients um, out in the field. So I, I think, you know, in that respect, it's, it's easier. But if you're, you know, working as a carpenter for eight hours a day and then trying to train for an EBI, for example, you know, and you want to take advantage of the opportunity, maybe training twice a day or three times a day is not going to be conducive to you. And have you seen how maybe performance enhancing drugs or anything affects sleep? Because it's so common in the world of maybe MMA, jiu-jitsu and stuff. I've stayed in, let's say, fighter houses, dorms, different things with a lot of people who would be taking performance enhancers. And every single one of them, I'd say, had terrible sleep apnea for a young person. I know it's hard to do studies on things like that, but... Every combat sport athlete person I've worked with, I'm like, are you taking any performance enhancing drugs? No, no way. And you're like, okay, you don't fucking pass a sniff test for me. You just don't pass it, right? But anyway, they're not going to admit it. So that, that's fine, you know? So that's that's okay. I don't know. I haven't actually looked at that topic really in depth, Tom. So I'm not too sure to give you a, a really good answer, but it's a, it's a good question. Mm. I'm, I'm going to actually have a look and see if there's anything out there. Yeah. I'd be surprised if there is anything out there. Um, but there might be some stuff on the mechanistic yeah, relationship probably- behind it. But, but what is interesting mm-hmm. talking about that same area is the increasing use of marijuana. So this is yeah. another, thing that, another thing that we see uh, pre- predominantly in combat sports and probably made more popular mm-hmm. by the likes of Joe Rogan and A. Bravo, you know? And so I get yeah. people lecturing me in the gym about the benefits of marijuana for sleep. And I'm like, that's bullshit. And they're like, no, it's not. If you listen to Rogan, they'll tell you blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I'm a fucking scientist. Rogan's not a scientist. And Eddie Bravo <laughs> is definitely not a scientist, right? Now look, I, I like <laughs> look into I, it. Yeah, look into it. Yeah, look, I I I I enjoy Rogan's podcast. So I know I don't listen to all the guests, but some of them is very inquisitive, very open. But I think mm. Matthew Walker spoke about this. When we talk about marijuana, <clears throat> we need to think about two things, two components of marijuana: THC, the psychoactive part, mm. and then we got CBD, which is a non-psychoactive part. Now, I interviewed Jennifer Witch from University of Western Australia, who ran a big clinical trial looking at a CBD medication for insomnia which improved measures of insomnia in people. I also did an audio abstract a few years ago reviewing the literature on cannabis. And so basically, if you're taking CBD on its own, there's no real deleterious effects, which are not going to be stoned from it, right? If you're taking THC, there is deleterious effects to your sleep because what THC does Mm. is people will say, oh, but when I smoke a joint before bed, I sleep really good. You might fall asleep, yeah. But your but your REM sleep, your dreaming sleep is suppressed significantly. And the longer you smoke okay. pot, 
the, the longer your REM sleep mm. is going to be suppressed, which Tom REM sleep is really important for next day memory and learning, memory consolidation mm. and learning. So people who are potheads yeah. trouble the next day. I'm not saying every one of them. I'm just saying that the mechanism is THC reduces REM uh, memory and learning, right? That's just the mechanism. I'm not saying that that's happening to people exactly because I don't know each person. And to think about as well is that when people come off THC from smoking weed, they will say to mm. you, I got to get back on the weed. My sleep is fucked up, blah, blah, blah. The body will experience for up to six months for some chronic pot smokers wow. will experience what's called REM rebound. So all that REM you've suppressed. So you've had very mm. little REM sleep over that time. Your body now is trying to catch up on it. And this happens in shift workers as well. So when shift workers don't get enough sleep over years, then for maybe up to two years afterwards, you'll be like, my sleep is completely fucked up because I worked shift work for 25 years. Jeez. And it's because your body's trying to get all this REM sleep back. That is the danger of long-term uh, pot smoking. But there's also, people say that marijuana is not a performance enhancing drug. I would actually, uh, that it is. Uh, it affects the pain receptors and inhibits the, uh, the pain and the feedback. Lots of ultramarathon user, uh, runners use it because as they go longer, quite prevalent in the US and the ultramarathon community as well. So I think it's a performance enhancing drug in that respect. I'm not saying it's a performance enhancing drug in mm. terms of like, you know, getting bigger delts or traps or whatever it might be, but it's going to be in terms of in pain management. That's what it's going to be an issue with. So, but the, so it's, it's the opposite of performance enhancing. It's probably like, you know, performance enabling. And I've seen people that it takes away the nerves a lot as well. It takes away maybe the fear of getting hurt a lot. It's funny because you think, oh, the, the classic pot smoker, they're going to be flopping around the mats. But actually, sometimes they actually get stuck in more. They'll be throwing their weight around more. Yeah. And then the other interesting thing is that people who take psilocybin and some of the other studies, I talked to a lady called Daniela Dukoski mm. from, I think that's how I pronounce her name, from Czech Republic. I had her on my podcast yeah. recently too. And she ran a study where she basically looked at people taking uh, psilocybin in the morning. So if you take psilocybin mm. in the morning, which is in mushrooms, didn't affect your sleep overnight. So if you're going to yeah. probably, you know, have a joint or take some mushrooms, do it during the day. Mm. Don't yeah. do it right before bed, you know? I, I just want to say this as well, Tom, to, to, with the caveat. <laughs> I don't give a shit what people yeah. do. Like, enjoy yeah. your life. I'm not into controls, mm. mandates, like rules. I'm a pure libertarian. Do whatever you want. Mm. Just don't annoy me. <laughs> like that's that's my yeah. view of life. So I'm not some sort of anti-pot guy or anti-alcohol or anti-drugs. I don't care what you do, but I just want you to be informed yeah. about what's going to happen. That's all I want you to know. I just want you to know what what the potential outcome is. If you're happy, Godspeed. You know. But tell me about the the ultra marathons actually, because it's kind of a funny mixture. A sleep scientist who also yeah. does ultra marathons. How did you get into those, and how are they? How have you felt your mental toughness maybe grow or anything? Yeah, it's quite a juxtaposition and it's difficult to train yeah. for um, because you're going from one end of the extreme to the other. But I've always enjoyed pushing my mind and body in different ways. So I left school early, mm. joined the military, then was like, okay, that was good physically. Now I want to go to university. And of course, I couldn't just go to university and get a degree. Yeah. I had to get a degree, a master's, another master's, and then a PhD. I just couldn't stop. I started to get into ultras by pure accident. I read an article in a magazine. I'd never ran more than like 10 or 15 Ks. Then I did a marathon the next year. Then I did a 100K race in the mountains. And so all the ultra marathons I wanted to do was all kind of mountain ultra running. So running with a backpack, 100Ks to 170Ks. I did that for about seven or eight years, kind of burnt myself out. Uh, so I haven't really run anything since I think 2017 or 18. Um, I, I ran one ultra a couple of years ago. I did 80Ks. 
um, maybe in 2020, mm. but I've done uh, some long distance ocean swimming since then. So I've swam to an island here off Perth uh, called wow. Rotnest. So I did a duo, which we swam 10 Ks each. And then I did a solo where I swam the full 20 Ks as well. Um, and so that's swimming like with no wetsuit, no fins, the whole lot. That was another challenge is what I wanted to do because growing up in, in Athlone in Ireland, you know, you basically just cross a river and that's it. If you can yeah. do a length of the pool, you're a good swimmer, you know, in a 25 meter pool. <laughs> so for me, it's, 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 it's challenging. And then obviously then <clears throat> I've been doing jujitsu probably seriously since about 2012. Before that, I was kind of on and off for two years. And before that, I was doing Japanese mm. jujitsu. Um, so it's, it, it, it's definitely difficult. But I suppose yeah. um, I've never tried to try to be, uh, you know, some sort of jujitsu phenom. I just did it for a bit of fun, recreation. You know, I just get a great, for me, it's a very social activity. It's just a way to push mm-hmm. myself in a different way, which I'm, I'm, I said to people, if I could get a black belt, anyone could get a black belt. Cause like I was just, <laughs> I, I'm, I've been Mr. Mediocre for 10 years or more. So, um, you know, I just got my, what we'll my middle-aged amateur recreational hobbyist black belt in December of last year. So, um, I make no illusion. I, like I said, we have no illusions. I'm some sort of jujitsu phenom. So, yeah, it is It is difficult to try and train in all those different ways and different domains, but it's also good as well because it gives you a sense, uh, to come back to your question about mental toughness, is getting crushed by a 95-kilo Mary black belt to six foot two. You think to yourself, hmm, you know, mate, you've, you've run 100 miles where oxygen was limited or you swam into the ocean and uh, all these things have happened. So you can control your breathing here for another couple of minutes and maybe see if you can hold out and vice versa yeah. then when I'm running events. Um, or swimming I go well at least no one's sitting on my chest trying to fucking Ezekiel joke yeah. right at the moment so you know from from the mount so um, yeah. it's all those type of things you know, that 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 I, that I like and a bit like the Musashi quote um, if you've ever read the book of five rings by Musa, Miyamoto Musashi once you see the way I'm one thing you see it in all so mm-hmm. I think that all of these things have helped and that's why in my PhD thesis I put in a quote from Musashi which says there's more than one way to the top of the mountain everything helps any time where you're challenging yourself mentally or physically, I think it's just going to help your mental toughness because you've been there before, you know what the steps are. And if you can try and master yourself in different domains, I think it all crosses over at the end of the day. But in saying that, I, I'm completely fucking burnt out from running. I feel like I've run up all my credits. So I've just been doing a lot more swimming the last couple of years, you know, yeah. so to do that. So I am. And do you have any other ongoing research? What, topics are you tackling at the moment and then as well where people can find you with different podcasts or different articles anything yeah so i've got a couple of projects on the go at the moment i probably the one that'd be most um most um of interest to your listeners will be a project yeah. um on a website that we've developed for this project specifically called combat sports science and i'll give yeah. you this link as well um yeah. so this is basically open to any combat sport athlete whether you're a week in there or whether you're a UFC fighter. And we've had people who are UFC mm. fighters right down to someone who started two weeks ago. So a hobbyist, amateur, recreational, pro, whatever you want to do. And we're looking for any martial artist or combat sports. So if you do karate, jujitsu, taekwondo, qigong, tai chi, kung fu, kickboxing, savat, letwe, sambo, bjj, judo, wrestling, I think I've mentioned them all, boxing. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we want you on this study and we want to get as mm. many people as possible. We want thousands of people to do this study. This study is self-funded by myself, Reed Real, who's the uh, UFC dietitian manager um, at UFC Performance Institute in Shanghai. Uh, Reed previously was at Gatorade 
And before that, he was at the Australian Institute of Sport. He's a jiu-jitsu black belt as well. And then also we have uh, Andy Galpin. And you may have heard Andy Galpin on Joe Rogan's podcast or on uh, Andrew Huberman's podcast recently. Yeah. And so myself, Andy and Reid are doing this project at the moment. So I'll give you the links for that. Basically, what we'd like for people to do is to do our online survey. It'll take 20 to 30 minutes. You'll be emailed an individual report straight away. So all the things we spoke about Mm -hmm. here today, Tom, how good is my sleep? How good is my nutrition? And so on. You get a self-assessment back um, from that. But more importantly, what it'll help us Mm -hmm. to do is we can collect that data and then we're going to use that to basically write papers. Basically, what are the sleep habits and training and nutrition of current combat sport athletes by different categories. And then what we can do is we can set these kind of observational studies now to set the future direction for combat sports. So the more people that get involved, the better. And because what we can do then is we can say, look, 95% of people, you know, need help with sleep. So we can, we can develop things to help them. And also as well, I've got a one hour presentation on the importance of sleep and recovery in combat sports. It's freely available mm. on YouTube. I'll give you that link as well. It's a one-hour presentation. I go into lots more depth of some of the stuff that we've spoken about today, sleep stages and chronobiology and sleep duration and what regulates sleep and brain and so on. So that that's free there as well. I've got tons of free stuff on my website as well. So I've got two main websites. Yeah. Uh, Melius Consulting is where I'll do my industry type of work. So if people want to mm. come to me about designing shift work or fatigue risk management systems or occupational health stuff, you can come over there to Melius Consulting. But I presume most of your listeners are want to go want to going to want to go to sleep for performance that's the number four performance.com.au and on there you'll find mm. lots of blogs you'll find videos you'll find my ted talk a few years ago called sleeping and win we've got about 120 episodes of the of the podcast up there as well you can go back and listen to our 2021 sleep for performance seminar all the speakers are there you can listen to that for free just enter in your email address you get access to the videos so I give out tons of free shit. That's the, <laughs> I really do. I give out, I give out loads of free yeah. shit. Like I give out heaps of stuff from the podcast to blogs, to the seminar. We've got sleep for performance mm. over at YouTube as well. I'm interested in lots of different things, but I pump out a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, my, my whole philosophy is not what can I get? It's actually, what can I give, mm. you know, within reason, yeah. um, you know, I still got to make a living, you know, but I give out yeah. tons of tons of free stuff out there. So really appreciate it, Ian. It was some great information. I learned a lot and lots of good ideas to kind of take my own learning as well in certain directions and stuff. So really no worries. It. Thanks very much. Excellent. Thanks, Tom. Big thanks to Ian for coming on the show. I know I learned a lot from Channing Tim and I hope everyone else did as well. It's obvious that quality sleep is something that's so important for performance. And it was great to get some clarity on some of the different ideas around that area. For anyone who'd like to check out some more of Ian's work, I've included some helpful links below in the description. Probably the most beneficial one is a current project that he's working on with Dr. Andy Galpin and also Dr. Reed Real from the UFC Performance Institute. It's open for all combat sports athletes, no matter what level you're competing at. So you can check it out at the link in the description or at combatsportscience.com. It's also good as well because you'll get some feedback on your own sleep and performance habits. Hopefully that's something that can help improve your performance in all aspects of life. As usual, if you enjoy the podcast, make sure you share it with your friends and subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes. Big thanks to everyone for all the support and feedback recently as well. And as usual, I always include some links below if you'd like to check out any of my instructional content or other ways to support the podcast. We'll be back next week with another great guest. Until then, Slánagas Banacht. Banacht.